12. This is Luke 6, 12 through 19, the choosing of the 12. In, those, in these days, he went out to the mountainside to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he went down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The word of the Lord. Well, I recently looked at the Rodriguez bank account, and uh, it looked a little bit light for my taste. I might even use the word helium as a descriptor. And so I realized that I needed to replenish the funds, what with summer coming up. And as I thought to myself, the best way to do that, I first considered knocking over a liquor store, but uh, that wouldn't go well for Redeemer's reputation. Uh, so I considered other things. I cashed in my 401k, I went to 7-Eleven and began to buy lottery cards at a rapid rate. And it was strange, every now and then I would, I would win one, I'd get excited, but then I'd go back to the well again. And lo and behold, somehow I did not manage to win the big prize at Virginia Lotto. I was frustrated, but I realized there was another way where the odds might be more in my favor. And so I went to Atlantic City and, uh, uh, you know, went to the tables and was trying to decide which, which uh, games to play. So I did a little study to figure out the odds of winning at a particular game. Now, I'm a big fan of Baccarat. Maybe you are as well. But there's a house edge of 1.06% in the game of Baccarat, which basically means the house has an edge. Well, what about Blackjack? A better game to be sure. In fact, one of the best games to play from a gambling perspective. Still, the house has an edge, 0.28%. And for some reason, the more hands you play, the more edge the house has. In fact, if you're playing 70 hands an hour, I guess binging on Blackjack, the increase goes to 0.75%. And it keeps on going whether you're playing Casino War, Catch a Wave, Craps, Heads Up Hold'em, Pal Grow, and of course Red Dog, that favorite go uh, game for many of us. Roulette, 2.7% in the house's favor. The challenge with gambling is the house always has the edge, and the house always wins. You know, life is a little bit of a gamble, isn't it? You have hopes and dreams, you have resources, you have so many doors to choose from to walk through. But sooner or later, you have to put your money down and decide. And so the question we all deal with is which door to choose, where to go, who to choose. How do we know we're making a right decision? Are the odds stacked in our favor or against us? Jesus is at a gambling point right now. He's come on the scene. He has started this ministry, and there's this crowd of disciples that are following him. But Jesus knows that he will go ahead and save the world through dying and resurrecting. He will go back to the Father. And so he must select a group who will go on and carry the message. 
who will literally change the world. And so it's time to choose. It's time to gamble. How did he know? I don't know. Somehow he did, and the rest is history. These 12 men are our spiritual fathers. If you go back to who shared the gospel or who preached the gospel to you, it goes all the way back to these 12 men. See, the way Jesus lives and the way he decides things and who he appoints shows us that Jesus does not live by the ways of this world. He introduces a new reality using new methods, achieving new results. And so the question I have for us, if you are a Christian, is this. How do we live our lives in the light of Christ? There are really two ways to live. One is we rely on our brain and our experiences. We calculate the odds and we make a choice hoping to get that opportunity. Or we live in God's ways. Mysterious, seemingly impossible, yet powerful and effective. You may feel this in your own life on a day-to-day -day basis, this contradiction to choose to live by sight or to live by faith. But the reality is this, my friends, that God's plans never fail. So don't give up on God's plans. Give in to them. Well, we're going to look at three ways in which Jesus decided on the 12. We're going to look first at the gamble. What was the gamble he was taking in choosing these 12? Number two, we're going to look at the strategy. What means did he use in selecting? What was his uh, odds that he was playing, so to speak, to accomplish his objective? The gamble, the strategy, and finally, we're going to look at the payoff. What was the result of the decisions that Jesus made? Well, let's start out with the gamble. As I've already said, Jesus has come onto the stage. He has announced himself. He has begun to perform miracles. He has proclaimed that the kingdom of God is among you. And he has gathered this group, these groupies, if you will. They're called disciples, but it's a larger group than simply the twelve. They're just following him from place to place because they know that there's something special about him. But a time has come where Jesus knows that he needs to establish a select group that he will train for the next two and a half years. They will eat with him. They will be together 24-7. He will be teaching them about the kingdom. He will be grooming them to take over the ministry. So who does he choose? Luke 6.13 says this, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Well, it's no mistake that he named twelve, is it? Twelve is a very historic figure. We think, of course, of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. That God set his affection upon a people. These 12 tribes of Israel. And he said that I will have favor on you. I will make you into a nation. In fact, Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. And no one will be able to stand before you. I will accomplish my will before you and you will receive God's blessing. And so with this ethnic group, God showed his power by bringing them out of Egypt, by settling them into Israel, uh, excuse me, into Canaan land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Well, Jesus now chooses 12. Not tribes, but 12 individuals. 
And he names them apostles. From the Greek word apostello, which means to send. To send. They are the sent ones. They are the spiritual offspring of God. And from them will come salvation. But it's not simply an ethnic small group that will receive this blessing. Rather, salvation is to go out to the ends of the earth. Every nation, tribe, around the world will hear the gospel, will come to faith, and a new spiritual kingdom will be built that will experience the blessing of God and ultimately entrance into the promised land of heaven. These 12 are to be the foundation for the kingdom of God. These 12 men are to be the ones who are to do it. It will not be built as a physical kingdom, but rather a spiritual kingdom. Now when you think about this, this is a ridiculous concept. We have Jesus, a backwards, excuse me, backwards preacher. The disciples, somewhat of a motley crew, a mishmash of this variety of people. They have no money, no power, no influence. Why would this be the plan anyways? Why risk it all with 12? Jesus, don't hand off the ball. Stay with it. Make it happen all the way. You can do miracles. Maybe these 12 are special people. Maybe there's something about them that gives them the ability to carry on this mission. But the reality is these 12 were pretty much the bottom of the barrel. If you were to grab the resumes of these 12, if you were looking for a job interview, here's what you would find. Simon Peter, small businessman, easily angered. Assets, he's big and strong and he has a boat. Education, none. Andrew, Simon's brother, small fisherman, uh, business as well, no education. John and James, the son of Zebedee, also in the fishing business. Stormy personalities, so much so that they're called the sons of thunder. No public ex speaking experience, no religious training whatsoever. Philip, we don't even have any background material. He didn't even bother sending in a resume. He's a nobody. Bartholomew, an, an, or Nathaniel Bartholomew. He's a friend of Philip's, and we don't know anything about him either. Matthew, tax collector, trader, some accounting skills, Allegiance is not to be trusted. Thomas, no education. A doubter, not reliable, not a company man. James, son of Alphaeus, nobody. Simon the Zealot, a member of the Dagger Men, the Zealots, a political group committed to overthrowing the Roman army by any means necessary, ruthless and secretive. Judas Iscariot, doesn't play well with others. Embezzler, thief, traitor. You know, as I look at the, these 12 that Jesus chose, there's only one common, commonality that I can find among all 12. They were all uniquely unqualified to lead this movement of building the kingdom of God. But God chose these people to change the world, to represent the Son of God. It doesn't make sense. But you see, God's kingdom operates by a different set of rules. The gospel has the power to take nobodies and turn them into somebodies. He has the power to take people who are relatively small and they can do unbelievable things. Those who are failures to become unbelievable successes. 
The very choosing of the twelve indicates the kingdom of God that Jesus is building. And we should take heart in that fact. Because God wants to do something extraordinary with ordinary people. I don't know if you remember the 1992 United States Olympic basketball team. They were called the Dream Team. They were the first American Olympic team to feature NBA players. And they were described by American journalists as the greatest sports team ever ascended, assembled. The greatest collection of basketball team on the, on the planet. They were composed of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, David Robinson, and Charles Barkley. As expected, they defeated their opponents by an average of almost 44 points per game. They were the dream team, and no one could stop them. Makes sense to choose the dream team, doesn't it? They had the skills, they had the abilities. But this team of 12 makes no sense. But the kingdom of God does not function like the world. And what is a gamble to man is not a gamble to God. Because the house always wins. So how do you see yourself? Are you a dream team or are you a reject? I'm a second class citizen. I'm not beautiful. I'm out of work. I'm overweight. I don't have a college degree. I'm overlooked. I'm the person they never pick on the kickball team. But God does not function like the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. See, the gospel changes everything, my friends. The dream team is not a candidate for greatness in the kingdom of God. It's those who are poor in spirit. Those who are humble. Those who are the nobodies. So don't look at yourself through the world's eyes. Look at yourself through His don't measure yourself by the standards of the world, but measure yourself by the kingdom. How? Remember the choosing of the twelve. If that's the most important thing, if that's how Jesus works, what does it mean for you? You are not a gamble. You are the sure thing. And the house always wins. Because God's plans never fail. So don't give up on God's plans. Give in to them. Well, Jesus gambles, but what's the strategy he uses? I mean, why choose these 12? There's a whole lot of nobodies in that particular area, right? Now, Jesus has a specific focus. In fact, there's a whole bunch of different disciples. He has to pick a particular 12. Maybe he saw something in them. I don't know if you remember, if you ever watched the movie Seabiscuit. Remember Seabiscuit? You know, uh, whoever, Jeff Bridges, who's the rich owner he sort of hears something and he goes off and there's this you know old guy who's there with this horse and they're just hanging out in the brush and the horse doesn't look like much and so Bridges asks you know why are you taking care of this horse and he basically said you don't throw a you know a great thing away just because it's banged up and Seabiscuit has greatness inside of him well these guys are not Seabiscuit there's nothing great inside of them. They're hanging out in the brush because they're hanging out in the brush. So how does Jesus choose them? 
In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when daylight came, he called his disciples and he chose them. Prayer was nothing new to Jesus. We see it throughout the Gospels. Often he would withdraw to lonely places and pray. Before he made major ministry decisions, he would pray. Right after he was baptized, he prayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. On the cross, he prayed. So much and so rich was his prayer life that his disciples came to him and said, teach us how to pray. And so before this critical decision, it says that he went out to the mountain to pray. See, he had a meeting he needed to go to. He needed to get away from the noise and the hustle and bustle of the world. He needed to get into the wild with his heavenly father because there was business to attend to. And so Jesus went to a lonely place. And it says that he prayed all night. Do you wonder what he talked about all night with God? Just to be a fly on the wall, to see this relationship of love between the Father and the Son who have been from all eternity, the richness of intimacy between them, and also the plan of guidance as Jesus sought the will of the Father and the Father gave the will to the Son. You know, Jesus once said this, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Can you imagine if one of us came up and said something like that? I can't do anything by myself. I can only do what my Father tells me to do. We would think to themselves that they're intellectually incapacitated. Or physically, there's something wrong with them because nobody lives like that. Well, Jesus did. See, Jesus needed to know what's God's plan. He needed to know how to execute it. So was this a strategy session? There was a draft board and they were talking about the particulars of this person or this person? No, I think it was quite simple. God the Father said these are the twelve. How did he know? Because he's God. He knows everything. He knows the past, he knows the present, and he knows the future. In fact, he's already there. God knows all of the reasons beyond reason. I still think it seems like a horrible plan. You know, what if Jesus heard him wrong? What if he went and he just chose, I mean, Matthias, Matthew, Judas, son of, you know, this guy. You know, it's kind of complicated. They got a couple names. Uh, I don't know if you ever experienced that, right? Go on the mountainside to pray. God, I need some help with this. You think God gives you an answer, but you're not exactly sure. What if I heard it wrong? Why did Jesus get it right? Why can we get it right? Really three reasons. Number one, he was about doing God's will. He went to the Father because he wanted to know the Father's plan to advance the Father's kingdom. Remember Jesus in the garden, not as I will, but as you will. He got it right because he wanted to do God's will. He got it right because he was dependent on God. The very definition of faith is that whoever would come after him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
Dependence on God. And finally, he trusted God is going to give the answer. How? I don't know. I'm going to do God's will. I'm going to depend and I'm going to trust that God's going to give the answer. You know, it's kind of scary to live like that, isn't it? I've got to lose control. I've got to live by faith. I've got to put myself out there and trust that whatever he says is going to come to pass. But the gospel functions by a different set of rules. Radically different. This is what Isaiah says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. And in quietness and trust is your strength. Our way is the way of spreadsheets and strategic planning and weighing the odds in which we're limited by our future knowledge and expertise and skill. How often we make decisions is on our own personal calculus. Now, I'm not saying that things like planning and skills and gifts you've been given are not important. What I'm saying is that there is a higher way that takes precedence over those ways, that informs them. A new intimacy with your Savior by which He invites you to the mountain. God said, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. When you decide to not live by your gifts and skills, but rather by the kingdom of God, you receive a new power. Not just your power, but the one who speaks and it comes to be. When you follow Christ in the ways of the kingdom, you receive new resources. As God says, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Who is this power, these resources, these gifts available to? Anyone who searches after him. The weaker, the more humble, the better. You know, what would happen if you lived like this? If you just put yourself out there. I'm going to stop living by the ways of the world. I'm going to live by the ways of God and the kingdom of God. And so help me, I'm going to lay down my chips and let them fall where they fall. I think you'd experience a lot less stress. I think what you and I would discover is incredible power. And I think you and I, what we would accomplish, I don't even know what it would be. But what if I fail, you say? One of my favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I think of a woman named Fanny Crosby. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. They call her America's hymn queen. Crosby had a hard life. As a six-week-old baby, she had an infection in her eyes. And through the incompetence of a doctor, she ended up being blind from age uh, eight weeks on. One year later, her father died, and she ended up living with her mother and grandmother as her mother took herself uh, to work as a maid to make ends meet. The grandmother, Eunice Crosby, would spend many hours reading the Bible to little Fanny. And she discovered that Fanny had an amazing uh, memorization and capacity of memorization. And as Fanny memorized chapters of the book of the Bible each week, she could eventually quote the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Gospels, the Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and many of the Psalms by memory. 
As she said, the holy book has nurtured my entire life. Crosby wrote 9,000 hymns. But what's interesting is she didn't start writing till into her 40s. Maybe you've heard of some of them. To God be the glory. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. How did she do it? This blind woman with so little resources and power. Fanny said it may seem a little old-fashioned always to begin one's work with prayer. But I never undertake a hymn without first asking the good Lord to be my inspiration. And she was asked the question, if she could see again, would she? And she said, it seemed intended to my blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If, perfectly, if perfect earthly sight were offered to me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. Fanny Crosby lived by the kingdom of God and her weakness was turned into strength. You know what the strategy of a successful life is? It's no strategy. You know what the strategy of a successful life is? It's no strategy. It's dependence upon God. See, the question is not what, but it's who. So what's your strategy for life? You have plans. You may even have education. You may even have a board of advisors that you go to to assist you in difficult decision making. And you may worry day in and day out that your humanly manufactured plans will come to nothing. But if we want to live by the kingdom, we need to have less planning and more praying. We need to often withdraw to lonely places. Have you ever kept a journal, written down your prayers? If we really think they're going to be answered, maybe we'd write them down. Maybe we'd wonder what God's going to do with these pleas of our hearts. Maybe you write a Red Sea list which is whenever God does something in your life through prayer, you write it down. So in those dry times when you wonder if God is there, you can see how He's been faithful. The strategy of a successful life ultimately is no strategy. I'm not, I'm not dogging any of those other things. I'm just telling you that at the end of the day, God's plans never fail. So don't give up on God's plans. Give in to them. Use God's strategy in the gambles that God calls you to. Finally, this leads me to my final point, the payoff. He chooses the 12. You know, by the way, one thing, it's very interesting. The 12 all said yes. You know, Jesus went around to other people and said, follow me. And they said no. How did he know that they would say yes? Because the house always wins. And so these 12 bewildered disciples who had been given the title apostle come down with him on verse 17 and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and so on who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cursed, cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. 
You know, it's been said that those who can do and those who can't teach. Well, Jesus did both. He taught and he did. The disciples were in the school of Christ. And he manifested to them what they would do by this inexplicable power of the Holy Spirit. Where did this power come from? This power that was coming out of him? This power which was healing people? He was just one man. The God-man. He came to inaugurate a new kingdom with new rules. Giving new people the last to become first. And those who are failures to be victorious. If you are a Christian, you have the blessing of living not by the rules of the world, but by the rules of the kingdom. A different gamble, a different strategy, a different result. And his plans always succeed. And so live them. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So live by a new set of rules. God's plan, by God's power, with my limitations, through prayer. Because when you work, you work. But when you pray, God works. These 12 only did one thing right as far as I can tell. They said yes. And they followed the Lord of the new kingdom and inaugurated the kingdom that will never end and that will one day consume all and come to fruition as this earth becomes the temple of the Lord. God's plans never fail. So don't give up on God's plans. Give in to them. Let's pray. Lord, I so thank you that we live by a different set of rules. For surely I would fail by the ones that are in place here. Lord, help us to live with excitement and energy and trust in the midst of the impossible. Lord, because you have inaugurated a new kingdom and your gospel has changed everything. Lord, help us to say yes as you call us to gamble our lives and our decisions and the things you have for us on your power and your resources. Lord, help us to live by your strategy in prayer, in trust, rather than doing Praying and then doing with our eyes fixed on you and not on our gifts and abilities. And Lord, ultimately show us the payoff of what it means to live an impossible life and to experience impossible results in us and around us. We pray all these things in Christ's name.